there are many things in this world that overwhelm us. A lot of folks that I've encountered this week are overwhelmed by grief. Some that are overwhelmed by the problems of this life. Many of us are at times overwhelmed by what's taking place in our world. But I'm glad that what's truly overwhelming is how glorious and how good and how great and how gracious our God is. You can be seated. I I want to just get right into the message this morning because I believe that that is where we need to take our hearts and our minds when we begin to be overwhelmed by what is taking place in our life. Our scripture this morning is Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I'm not going to take every verse in both of these chapters. We celebrate today the birthday of our nation, or tomorrow actually, this weekend. We acknowledge its greatness, the greatness of our nation. Now, we qualify that to understand that our nation is not, nor has it ever been, a perfect nation. But it has accomplished some great things. And I'm certainly not one of those who believe that you can't simultaneously love your nation and worship God at the same time. I am a part of a group of people, a larger group of people, Um, that I don't agree with everything about them, my nation, but I love my nation and I think it's great. Much like um, I'm a part of a larger group of people in a church that um, is not perfect. I'm sorry, some of you are close, but we're not perfect, but I still love my church. Um, I'm a a member of a smaller group of people, my family, and um, I don't agree with every one of them and we're far from perfect but I still love my family. So there's no problem with with loving some group that we're a part of and respecting and honoring. But our purpose today when we gather in a worship service is not to look at the imperfect and exalt the imperfect greatness of our nation. It's to look at the perfect greatness of God. If we look at the things around us, if we look at our world, we will be overwhelmed. There are problems, there are burdens, there are things that we are carrying that are more than we're capable of handling. And our world has a variety of ways of handling that, but for the believer, it is important for us to have our minds turned upon the greatness of God. There's no more perfect place to go for this than the scene that is described in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. In this scene, there is probably no more clear expression of the worship of God's greatness that takes place in the throne room of heaven, in the presence of God. We're not going to go through every verse, but I do want you to see some truths this morning. God's greatness is the subject and center of this account as John is called up to heaven. And I hope this morning that whatever's going on in your life, whatever you're facing, whatever is burdening and overwhelming your heart and overwhelming your mind, that we will be able to put that aside to focus on God's greatness as expressed in these verses. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 4. We're going to see two great works that God has done and is doing in this world. The first is the work of creation. The second is the work of redemption. In verse 1 of chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. 
Now I want you to see in verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. You're going to notice as we look through this chapter, and you can come back later and read the entire chapter, but you'll notice the emphasis and the focus on the throne. The throne is not just the, the center of focus in the scene. In whatever room a throne is, that's where the focus is. If a king is seated on his throne, that's where the focus is going to be. So in this setting, in this scene that John is accounting, God on his throne, the throne is at the very center but it's also at the center of this chapter, this message that God is communicating to us in this scripture. He is focusing on the throne. In fact, 19 times in this chapter, you will see some form of the word throne. Sometimes it's the word throne. In other places, it's the seats are the same word, but it's the thrones that the elders sit upon. But there's 19 times. To put that into context, there's about... 12 or 13 times in the whole rest, apart from Revelation, in the rest of Scripture, the word throne is only mentioned about a dozen times. In the book of Revelation, about 45 times, but here in this chapter, 19 times. Two times in the verse we just read, our focus is drawn by repetition to the throne that God is seated upon. It says there was a throne set in heaven, and there was one that sat upon the throne. Now, in Scripture, God's throne is presented in a variety of ways. There's the, the throne of rewards, the Bema seat, that we as believers will stand before. There's the throne of judgment that is described in the end of the book of Revelation, the great white throne judgment that God sits upon and judges all the unbelievers. There is the throne that is described in the end that is a part of His glory and the lightness of the eternal state and the new Jerusalem. But here, His throne is speaking to us of His sovereignty and His power over all. And it emphasizes that He is the Lord, He is the God, He is the King of all creation. And this is repeated over and over through this. There's those sitting around in verse 3, He that sat on the throne was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. All the, all the central focus of heaven, in this heavenly scene, all is focused on Him. He is the one that is the center of attention. Is God the one who is the center of your attention? Is God the one who is the focus of our worship? I certainly hope so. When we come together to worship, I hope that our focus is on God. It's not on man. It's not on the things around us. Is our service for God focused on Him? Our motivation of seeking to serve Him and to please Him. Everything in our lives. What about our obedience? We heard so wonderfully in Sunday school hour this morning about hearing and listening to the voice of God. Our obedience to Him. All of that. He is the one that is seated on the throne. And we see the first of two statements of His worthiness. I want you to drop down to verse 11. In verse 8, they say, holy, holy, holy. They rest not day and night, exalting and worshiping God. And these beasts, these creatures, verse 9, give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever. 
The four and twenty elders fall down before him and sat that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their thrones before the throne, the crowns before the throne, saying, Do you notice the repetition of the one that's seated on the throne? All of this worship is deserved because he is the one on the throne. Let me remind you that God is the one who gets to say what is right and what is wrong. God is the one who gets to determine what we are to do. God is the one who who rules this universe because He's the one that is on the throne. Now look with me in verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord. There's the expression of the worthiness of God to receive worship. The greatness of God. But what is it rooted in? Here's the first work. Here's the first expression of that greatness. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because Thou hast created all things and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. He's worthy because of the greatness that He has created all things for His pleasure. We see in His creative work the greatness of God. There's nothing that expresses to, the, to, the, to every mind on this planet the greatness of God like that of His creative work. Someone sent me a, a little video some time ago, and it starts with, uh, with our planet, and it begins to grow, it, start, it goes to larger, it goes through our solar system to each planet in size, and it gets larger and larger, and then it moves to the sun, and you see a comparison between those planets and the sun, and then it moves to other planets, and outside our solar system and to finally reaching the largest bodies of existence in our, in our known universe. And it shows how minuscule we are in the greatness and magnitude of all that God has created. And then it reverses and it goes down and it starts going down from the human size all the way down into the cellular, cellular level and down to what some of you probably have better words for it than I do, but the nano-sized things, those, those things that are subcellular. And God is the one who has created all of that. He created to the highest magnitude and the most minuscule things on this planet. He created each one of those. And in them there is life. And only by the hand of God, only by the Word of God, are the heavens made. Only by the speaking of God did things come into existence. He said, you have created all things. Not just the, the size of things, but think about, think about the function of this universe and this creation. Think about how our bodies function amazingly. Now, some of us don't quite have the coordination that others have, but our bodies are functioning right now beyond the control of our mind, beyond what we can do. I don't have to stand here this morning and tell my body to breathe. My body is just functioning the way that God designed it. I don't have to tell my heart to beat. My, my heart is working and functioning and yours is. Maybe some of them well and some of us not so well. But we're, we are functioning and God designed it for that to take place. But not just within us, but our, all the ecological systems that work and the balance that God has in creation. All of that is a design within His work that magnifies His greatness beyond anything we can comprehend, beyond anything we can understand, or anything we can replicate. God has created all things that are. Go beyond just the function. You know, God could have created a world that functions like some people create buildings that function and cars that function, 
but they don't have much beauty to them. I, I think there's hardly anything more beautiful than a muscle car from the late 60s. I'm just going to throw that out there. Can I get an amen from some, some of the men? Maybe have said amen, hadn't said amen since I've been here, and that's the first time. That's good preaching, preacher. That's the, that's the, the beauty. We appreciate, we recognize beauty. I am glad that God didn't just create a functional, in His greatness, He didn't just create a functional universe, He created one that has beauty in it. He created one that has flavor in it. God could have created food that just kept our bodies alive and fueled to function, but He didn't. He put bacon on this planet. He put barbecue on this planet. I'm getting more excitement out of y'all over bacon and barbecue and muscle cars than I am over Jesus. We need to have revival around here. But aren't you glad that God made things for us to enjoy? I'm glad whether you go down to the, to the coast, to the beach, or you go up to the mountains or in between, the beauty that God has designed into this creation for us to look at and for us to enjoy. There's really no other reason for it to be that way. But God in His greatness has created a masterpiece. He is a master artist. You can just watch the sunset in the evening. And it's extraordinary to see the color and the beauty. The beauty in creation is one of the divine fingerprints that God has left upon this creation. And it shows us the greatness of our God. But beyond all of those things, the most wonderful thing about creation that reveals the greatness of God is that creation is a voice for His existence. The heavens declare, Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night. All of this is speaking about the greatness of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the invisible things of God are seen through the creation. Again, Psalm 19 says there's no voice or language where their sound is not heard. This is the voice of God. This is the general revelation of God that every person on this planet is exposed to. And Revelation says, Romans 1 says they are without excuse. Every person... For a long time, only the Hebrew people, only the Jewish people had written, expressed, revealed Word of God. Only they had the writings in the Old Testament. And many of them could not read them for themselves, but they had the Word. Was God only revealed to them? No, God says there's no language where they're not heard. You don't have to speak a specific language to look at creation and see the invisible things of God revealed. And Romans says they are without excuse because when they saw those things, they didn't worship the Creator, they began to worship the creature. And it is creation and it's most ba- that it reveals in the most basic of forms that any person, whether they can read, write, or understand, they can see and know that there is a God in heaven. And it reveals the greatness of our God. That's the creation work. And he says in verse 11, look at this, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because Thou hast created all things. 
the greatness of His creation. But then we move in the second part of this scene, and I remind you that the chapter divisions are, are not inspired, so the, the scene continues. There's not an ending here and a new beginning. This scene that John is describing continues, but the focus moves from the general revelation of God in creation to the very special revelation of God in redemption. This is what I want you to see this morning. I saw on the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. Now, let's not impose our modern understanding of a book on this word book. It, it's really a scroll, and that was the book of that time. So it's hard sometimes when I was a kid, I would think writing on the front side and the back side, and I was always taught not to write in books, so I thought, man, what are they doing writing on? But it's, the, it's a scroll that is rolled up, and he says there are seven seals, and so the, the scroll would be rolled up and written on, and then it would be rolled and, and sealed, and then it would be written some more, and then it would be rolled some more and sealed until there were seven seals. He says, who is worthy to open in verse Two, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. Now to understand what this scroll is, what is this book, what is this scroll that John is seeing? To understand that, there's two key passages from the Old Testament. Let me quickly just walk us back to the Old Testament in order to understand what this scroll is talking about. The first of these is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Jeremiah is thrown into prison. Babylon is attacking Jerusalem. They are invading the nation. And Jeremiah has been preaching a very unpopular message. He's been saying, hey, let's, let's stop fighting. This is the judgment of God. We're not going to win. You're not going to win fighting against God. Unfortunately, he was, that was not real popular with the king who didn't want morale taking upon him, so he throws Jeremiah in prison. While Jeremiah is in prison, there is a relative of Jeremiah that comes, and he says, Jeremiah, um, I'm in a financial strait, but I have a piece of property that I want to sell you. You know, there's nothing like someone who wants you to bail them out when you need to be bailed out of prison. And so he says, I want you to purchase this piece of property because I want you to, I want you to keep it in the family. And he has a, a deed of a right of ownership that is a scroll that he presents to Jeremiah. Jeremiah doesn't want to do it because here's the catch. The land that he's being asked to purchase is already under the domination of the Babylonians. They've already taken that land. So there's no possibility. He knows that Jerusalem's going to fall. Jeremiah knows, I'm never going to get to use this land. And yet God says to Jeremiah, I want you to purchase that land. I want you to buy that land. And he purchases it and he receives that scroll, that right of ownership. And it's a prophetic declaration that Israel, though they're about to lose, they are going to be returned to that land. They're going to be restored, and that land will still have value. It will still be in the family. But that scroll that he takes is the, is the right of ownership. It's the, it's the deed proper to that property. God's illustrating this, and he's teaching this. And so the second passage that you can go back and look at later is Zechariah chapter 5, where the prophet Zechariah sees a flying scroll written on the front and the back, just as this one is. And there, the writing on the front and the back are the, the fulfilled sins of the nation of Israel that are about to be judged. 
There's judgment on the way. And all their sins, it's so many sins that it's been written on the front and the back. And so when we come to this and we find this seven-sealed scroll, it is a reminder, it is symbolic of the, the ownership deed to this earth that belongs to someone. And there's no one found that is worthy to take this title deed. There is no one to open the seals that will pour out the judgment of God upon this earth. And this scroll is there. This scroll points us to the greatness of the one who's going to be magnified in this chapter. Because notice what happens in verse 4. John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. There's a search through heaven and they find no one. And yet here is the one, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. His greatness is not only magnified by his authority and his ownership of this scroll, but through his sacrifice. Notice what John sees. He says in verse 6, And behold, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and one of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. It's the lamb that is slain before the foundation. The elder says, look, there's a, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah that has prevailed. He's the one that is worthy to open this book. He's the one that's worthy to open the seal. But when John looks, it's not a lion. He sees a sacrificial lamb. The word that is used here for lamb is that of a small lamb that is prepared for sacrifice. He is speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And that is where His greatness is, and that is where the greatness to open the book, to take the title deed of this earth and pour out the justice and judgment that will take place in the book of Revelation. It is found in His sacrifice to redeem us from our sins. That is the greatness of our God. That is His greatness. Taken all together, these passages point us to this scroll as Christ's title deed to the earth that the Father has promised to Him because of His obedient sacrificial death. Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says that Christ is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Him. Philippians chapter 2, because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. This is the reward. This is what is deserved. This is what he is worthy of because he is the lamb that was slain. That's the greatness of our God and our redemption there's not just a scroll and there's not just a sacrifice. I want you to see there's a song in this scene. Verse 9, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? Why are you worthy? Why is he worthy? Why can he do this? Because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Remember back in chapter 4, they said you're worthy because you created. Here, they say you are worthy because you have redeemed us. You have saved us. 
He is worthy of our worship and our honor and our praise because He is the one that has saved us from our sins. It is by His blood, He says in that song, that He has redeemed us. That's the greatness of our God in His work of redemption. This is an amazing song. It's a, it's a worship song. He says, Thou art worthy. I don't know of a more apt nor accurate phrase, yet simple phrase that expresses due worship to God. Thou art worthy. It's not just a worship song, it's a gospel song. In the last part of verse 9, he says, you've redeemed us to God out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue. You have redeemed us to God. It's a missionary song. He speaks of those from around the world who have heard the gospel. I look forward to the day I look forward to the day when what we have done this morning, which is mere foreshadowing of what we will do eternally and perfectly when we stand before God. But we will be gathered. This is just a a small expression of the body of Christ. This is an expression of the believers in one locality and in one time. But it is a foreshadowing of when we will stand before God and we will stand with brothers and sisters from every time and every place and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we will express to God... You are worthy because you have created all things. And to Christ the Lamb, you are worthy because you have redeemed us by your blood. And so when we worship here, we're just warming up and getting ready for what we're going to do there. How do we respond to the glory of the Lamb? He's worthy because He's redeemed us. Let me give you three quick thoughts. Number one, praise is the natural result of an awareness of God's greatness. Praise is just the natural result. Have you ever seen something that was so beautiful and amazing, you just couldn't help yourself, your your jaw dropped? Wow! You're struck word, you don't even know what to say. That's the natural expression of our worship to God. To be merely aware of God's greatness is insufficient. There must be adoration and adulation that flows from a heart of worship. Now, we express that in a variety of ways. We've expressed it in a variety of ways this morning. But I don't, it doesn't matter which biblical way you express your worship. What matters is that you express your worship and praise because He is worthy. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The very act of worship and praise itself is a part of our enjoyment of our God. We enjoy His greatness. We enjoy His presence. And it's not just, hey, I'm enjoying this. The praise itself becomes an a part and a completion of that worship. Number two, our praise is not based on full comprehension or understanding. Our praise, don't don't wait till you fully understand what you think you need to understand about God before you worship Him and you praise Him. Because here's the simple truth. If we wait until we've got a full grasp of His greatness, we'll never praise Him. And if you think you've got a full grasp of His greatness, you are simply deluded. Because His greatness is beyond our understanding. We express, we lift it up, but we don't wait. Don't wait for perfect understanding. Number three, God is great whether we feel the awe 
and an awareness of it or not. There's times when we come to church, and I love when we come, and man, you can, you, you're just overwhelmed. You feel that overwhelming greatness of God. We are just put in awe by how amazing and how great He is. And then there's other times where we come, and because of all that's taking place in our life and all that's going on, we feel like we can barely hold our head up. God is just as great in the second Sunday as He was in the first. God's greatness does not change. And it is worthy of our praise. It is worthy of our worship. It is worthy of honor. He is a great God beyond all anything in this world that could be described as great. And I'll close with how this scene closes. In verse 11, I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, the creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousands time ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, the fowl, the cattle, the wild beasts, the fish, the insect, everything within a fallen creation that has been muted by sin and by the fall suddenly finds its voice. And what do they say? Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sits on the throne, the Creator, and unto the Lamb, the Redeemer, forever and forever. And the living creatures before the throne say Amen. And the multitudes in heaven say Amen. And every creature in the earth says Amen. And God's people this morning can say Amen. What a great and mighty God. Greater than any problems we're facing greater than the struggles of this world, our society, greater than anything that is going on. My God reigns and my Savior redeems. And I rest in that. And I am overwhelmed by the greatness of our God. Father, we exalt you this morning. Father, you are great. To say that seems so, so weak and insignificant, but Lord, at our best, it's flawed, but it's what you deserve. So Lord, we exalt you this morning. May our eyes be turned from what overwhelms us in this world, and may they look to you to be overwhelmed by your greatness. Father, speak to us in this invitation. Stir hearts to worship. Stir hearts to praise.